Previously on Electric Bookaloo. I mean, he's always been a little bit saucy, but I would say that this is his sauciest episode. This is, yes, as saucy as he gets. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week's conversation is with Dr. Robert Rouse. He has taught several classes on Game of Thrones at University of British Columbia. We'll be covering Arya's first POV chapter, that's chapter 7. I'll also include my conversations with Lisa Woolfork and Gregory Webster, both related to Arya. So it's an Arya heavy podcast this week. She's my favorite. We'll also check in with Steve, who's done his very first viewing of You Win or You Die, Episode 7. First up is the short excerpt from Lisa Wolfwork, and then we'll cover Chapter 7 with Professor Rouse. The reason why you were on my radar in the first place, Dr. Wolfwork, is that I saw that you taught a class at UVA related to Game of Thrones, and I thought we could swap class stories. So uh, <laughs> I, so I, I used this book once for an ethics class, and oh, good. I, oh, loved, I loved great. it. But I want to hear about your class and how it was framed and really how the students received it. It was a wonderful class. I taught it for about five years, and what we concentrated on was Because it was in a truncated semester, I did this in the summer session, which is just four weeks. Mm. So in the first week of the class, we read the first novel. That was the first five days. And there was a quiz every day. And there was a great, rich conversation of the first novel. And then I paired the novel with secondary scholarly sources. We looked at about 30 episodes of the HBO series. Okay. It was pretty great because a lot of students that they were very dedicated, whether they had seen the show before or not seen it before. And so we were all pretty much watching season seven Mm. as it was happening. Um, We spent a lot of time talking about that and which was some really great and rich conversations. But I'm not a big fan of just lecturing. I much prefer to have discussion centered Uh, student-driven learning. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I really like that. I mean, I think that I'm fascinating and amazing and really smart, but I don't want to talk for two and a half hours straight about anything. Yes, both things can be true. You can be fascinating and you can talk for too long. The class that I taught, for a lot of years, I slept around as an adjunct professor. And one of the classes I was able to latch on to was this ethics class, and I'd never taught ethics before. Because okay. my background is in religious studies. And the one of my idea- good friends, I have so many good friends in religious studies, and they also do ethics, yeah. but then they don't think that they're ethicists. That's right. So <laughs> it's funny because I have this misperception, and my friends who are in religious yeah. studies say it's a misperception. Mm-hmm. I think that religious studies professors are like holy people. And they're like, no, we are not that way at all. We we are opposite. (laughs) The reason why we became professors is that we do not think that we're holy people, right? Oh, goodness. So that's funny. So you have a religious studies background, which you thought made you... Well, I think... Not 
an ethicist material? I guess because ethicist is usually part of philosophy. Is that's that right? right? So I felt somewhat ill-equipped to pick up this class at the last minute. They offered me this class at the last minute. Mm-hmm. And it required me to dr- drive two hours to the classroom. Oh, you know, it's like a two-hour class and I'm driving four hours to do this class. Um, the life of an adjunct professor, right? Yeah. So the, the idea for the class was at the University of Pacific was that the students will choose a book and then what they'll do is they'll interact with the book and write their own ethical framework paper based on this book. And I thought, you know, there are like 40 students in the class and I thought, you know what? I've never taught this class before. There's no way I am going to read 40 books because they're each going to choose a different book. Right. So, right. So as much as I love to read, I'm not going to do that. So I thought, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to choose three books that are important to me. And I'll make them three books of a much different type. And none of these books are going to represent my religious upbringing at all. Mm-hmm. So whatever lecturing that I bring to the class, at least that there's a little bit of diversity in these books. And so the three books that I chose were A.J. Jacobs' Year of Living Biblically, which is really sort oh, of yeah. a... Oh, yeah, I know that book. He's a humorist. It's basically a, a journal. The, the book is a journal of him trying to uh, live out the Bible literally as... Yeah, not shaving and no shellfish. Yes, exactly. So that was one option. Another option was the autobiography of Malcolm X, um, Alex Alex Haley. And then, of course, I chose A Game of Thrones. Oh, my gosh. That is so funny. So how do the three of those work together? My goodness. They don't. And and I think that the (laughs) students, like, I didn't really know what I was doing. But I knew that those were important books for me. And so I would be able to interact with them. And so the students got to choose one of these books. And, and of course, you know, they, a lot of the students chose a Game of Thrones because there was a a series out. And so that's how I used that book. I never taught the class again. And I only did that because I was asked to do it at the last minute. I thought, Hey, I got to choose three books that I love. And so that's why I did it. I want to, I want to ask you a, a question and I don't think you're prepared for it. So if you want to avoid the question, you can. Okay. Of all of the characters in all of these books, who is the character that your friends and family think you are? And, but then the second question is, deep down inside, the character that you know, you really have affinity with this one character. Mm, that is interesting. That is really a great question. I like it. And, you know, I am not super prepared for it because <laughs> the question has to do with how do people, it's kind of one of those memes that say what my friends think I do yeah. and what I really do. Exactly. Um, That's it. That's it. It's really perfect. And I only have like 167 named characters to choose from. <laughs> That's so, right. So <laughs> um, I, I don't right. know. I really feel an affinity. I feel like my friends and family might think of me as Sam. Okay. Tell um, me more about that. And I think of that, that just because this is someone whose life who's been able to change his life through books and through literacy and through reading and through research. I think that Sam was like the patriot saint of college professors everywhere. Yeah. He's able to, yeah. Books are like a salvation for Sam, right? They really are. They really are similar. And I think they're, they're a salvation for him in a way that they are not for Tyrion Lannister, who is often seen as like, you know, a very bookish, you know, who's often Uh known for his literacy. But I think, that Tyrion's wealth 
and social position mm. make this a lot more optional for him. For right. Sam, throughout the series, books save him. They save him from a cruel father yeah. until they stop saving him when he comes of age. They give him a position as the new maester, you know, later on, you mm. know, like to serve the Night's Watch in a way that's um, permanent and important. And he's a repository for a lot of knowledge, particularly in a culture where stories and oral histories are critical. Yes. Um, and so he knows a lot of these stories and legends. He's the one that's able to distinguish between a dead body that's fresh versus one that's old. And the books say this. I read it in a book. I read it in a yeah, book. Yeah. Not and only so, that, mm -hmm. but I love this, actually. He sort of just escaped from craster's keep and he's escaped from another. He's just killed another. That's right. That's right. And he's with Gilly, who is like most of the people in that culture, they're illiterate. That's right. And he's able to find this gateway through the wall only because he read it in a book. And Gilly looks at him. And it's like, are you a wizard? Yes. Are you must be. Are you, you like for her writing is like magic. Yes, it is. And he, you know, in the show, we learned that he always wanted to be a wizard. And in that moment, he gets to become a wizard in her eyes. I, I love that, that part of it. Yes, that's right. And this is, you know, someone who was mocked mm. for basically being like a nerd, right? <laughs> yeah. And yet... Well, in a culture where being a nerd means that your father might kill you. Well, I know. I know. I mean, it's just, yeah. Oh, Rossum's <laughs> like a pretty crappy place to live. I'll tell you that much. Uh, so, um, yeah. So you are, so you have affinity for Sam I have affinity well, for yeah. Sam, but what I would actually prefer, the people who I would like, if I wanted to see myself, the people that I admire the most in the series, mm -hmm. um, the people that I absolutely admire the most are Daenerys and Arya. Okay. Um, both of them I admire as characters. I think I really liked what Martin did with them. I have no idea how they turn out in the final books because right. we don't have those yet. So yeah. I'm just looking at the series for guidance. And I think that Daenerys is completely done dirty in season seven, but that's not a question for today. <laughs> um, and Arya just turns out to be 100% that bitch. Um, excuse my language. I mean, no, she, I love it. You know what? I am amazing. such an Arya guy. I love Arya. Love she's now. my favorite. So yeah. tell me why she's your favorite. She's my favorite because this is someone who's been able to navigate this system. Mm. All of these systems are arrayed against her. Yeah. Um, you know, unlike Bran, she's not going to run a house of her own. She's not going to be a banner man. She wants to be. She would much rather be a banner man to mm. her brother than a lady of anybody's house. Right. Um, and she, she goes through these cultures in a way that I think reverses these narratives of colonial dominance. Mm. Um, she's not going there as someone who wants with a position of mastery or dominance or I'm from Westeros and the rest of you all in Essos. No, she's a to, student. She's, she's going a, there as a student. She is curious. She yeah. is curious. She admits she doesn't know things. She wants to learn. Um, mm. she, she practices. She studies. She accepts correction she grows like all of these things mm. and then she is also able to use her her physical body in ways that women ex with the exception of Brienne of Tarth are able to do 
you know, like this is, this is a very grim world for women and it's a world where women are subject to sexual violence all the time. Mm. And to have, for me to have a woman who's able to navigate around that, not only it reinforces the permanence of rape culture within this, within the series period, but it also shows that that's not a totality. And I think that that gives mm. me something to root for, even if it's rare. Right. You know, Martin does that. I mean, he really walks that knife's edge, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Because Which, in order, what do you to, mean between yeah, what and what? I was just thinking about the the question of rape culture. This is a much bigger question, but there's a sense in which Martin wants to, say, if he wants to say something about feminism, he's going to have to do it. First off, he's going to have to do it as this white dude writing in in the ninety in the early nineties, right? That's so he right. doesn't need to have the option to be someone else, but he almost has to paint this portrait of how bleak it is in order to have yes. someone like Brienne or Arya shine in the midst of that darkness. That's right. And you have to be able to illustrate that. I think that Brienne and Arya's resistance to this culture mm. shows how corrupt the culture is and that there are women who are able to find their way through it without destroying themselves or without completely capitulating to a system that requires Hmm. in some way their compliance. It requires everybody's compliance, but it requires more, I believe, Hmm. of the female characters. And this is why I think that Brienne and Arya are such fan favorite in the same ways that someone like Sansa, and at least as in far as, at least in my reading, has gotten a lot of fan contempt mm. um, until the, the very, very end. Um, or that even Cersei, it has this kind of grudging admiration um, because she's learned to play the game, even right. though she continues to be underestimated by lots of people. Hmm. Um, in the series and the only reason they underestimate her is because she's a woman and she knows that so well and Arya is really remarkable I mean the way that they set up Sansa in the first place is through Arya's eyes yes and Arya Arya her perception of her older sister is it's not just about contempt it's about that person represents everything that I'm not good at Yes. And oh, she's so advancing. Envy and rivalry. That's right. So this person, Sansa, is advancing in all of the ways that are expected of her. And I cannot, even though I'm a better, you know, I'm a better writer, mm-hmm. that doesn't help me in the way that it helps Sansa that she's socially graceful. That's right. And, That's right. and I think that that sort of prepares the reader to root for Arya over and against Sansa. But also, Arya is so courageous at such a young age. Yes. And we almost forget that Sansa is 13 years old, you know? That's right. Everybody is so young that Bran is seven, mm. you know? And That's right. What is, and Rob is 14, and I think that John is also 14 or 13. Or maybe they're 15 like, and 14. Yes. They're all young. Yes. And I feel like Sansa, like my... My impression of Sansa was negative very early on, be, probably because of those. I loved Arya so much. And it was because in this first book, every opportunity that Sansa has where 
she could either choose the courageous option or the the option of self-interest. I feel like she's always choosing the option of self-interest. And here I am forgetting that I'm looking at this older sibling through the eyes of a much younger sibling. Exactly. And, you know, and, and so, and then of course, Sansa becomes this fantastically interesting character in the later books. And it's interesting that you use the phrase self-interest versus self-preservation. That's right. That's exactly right. And so like, you know, who doesn't want to, you know, who doesn't act in their self-interest? Everybody, we all make decisions every single day exactly. in our self-interest. And especially it's, when you're 13 years old and you're in a society that has taught you to act in certain ways, right? Exactly. And it's also worth thinking about why is it that when Bran looks at his older brothers, that's at Rob and at John, mm-hmm. he looks at them through admiration and through just kind of interest. Whereas when Arya looks at Sansa, it's through rivalry. Yes. I mean, there is nothing that, that Sansa has that Arya can have. Neither, right. neither one of them are going to get anything, right? <laughs> They're both going to get sold off to some man that's going to make the Stark alliances stronger throughout the realm. Like yes. that is what they are for. They are meant to advance the family strength, right? That is what they are meant to do. And so it makes no sense in my mind for Arya and Sansa to be um, in conflict or for Arya to be kind of jealous of Sansa Mm. when they're not, they're fighting over, they're not not even fighting over scraps, right? Right. They're fighting over absolutely like nothing. And now chapter seven with Robert Rouse. Dr. Robert Rouse. Now, is that how I pronounce your name? I'm not certain about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. <laughs> All right. I want to ask, what is your relationship to your own voice? It's hmm. a good question. It's a really revealing question. Uh, my relationship to my own voice is a problematic one. Like, I, I don't know about you, but whenever you hear yourself being recorded back, right. it's very hard to recognize yourself. That's like when right. he plays it, you're like, that, who, who is that? Who the hell is that idiot? Um, but like for me, it's even more so. Like I grew up in New Zealand, so I had an accent that is very typical of a New Zealander, although my parents were British, so that meant it was a little bit off in the first place. Uh-huh. Then I lived in the UK for a long time, and then now I've lived in Canada for 15 years. So I don't really place myself when I hear my accent anymore. Yeah, you're a little hybrid, I, I think. Yeah, yeah, very much. Like I remember the first trip I did back to New Zealand in 2001. I left in 99 for grad uh-huh. school. And I went back and I read a physio. And uh, the physio was like, oh, so which part of the UK are you from? And this was an Australian physio in New Zealand asking me what part of the UK. I was like, I was born here, you if. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, voice, the, voice, the voice just adapts to where you are. And yeah. You're sort of at the mercy of your context, right? Yeah, very much. Like, I'm from all sorts of places. My wife is from Toronto but lived in Europe for a long time. Sure. So both of us find everybody sounds weird. <laughs> all right so yeah. i what i'd like to do is i'd like to do a quick synopsis of the chapter that we're covering we're looking at aria's first point of view chapter which is chapter seven yes so we meet aria and sansa and jane pool septon mordain beth castle and marcella lannister and they are practicing the quote-unquote womanly arts, <laughs> but Arya's no good at them. And so her stitches are crooked. She 
she's not quite connecting with the other girls in the room. In fact, they're talking about how, how handsome Joffrey is, or you know, may, maybe maybe he's not so handsome in Arya's point of view. Then she gets chided by Septa Mordain. Her stitches aren't quite perfect, and she leaves. She she bolts. She leaves the room, and uh, she finds Jon Snow and Ghost overlooking the yard where people are sparring. She wants to be with the boys. The boys are are playing at swords, and she's much more comfortable over there. She has a very interesting exchange with John about the roles of girls and bastards. Then she goes back to her room to find her mother and Septimordain waiting for her ominously. And that's the chapter in a nutshell. And you wouldn't think that there was a lot going on in it besides a few notable conversations. But uh, but there's a lot of interesting details about these characters that I find fascinating. And I'll admit right now, Arya is my favorite character. And so I'm always <laughs> going to find the Arya chapters fascinating. But I'm curious, Robert, you're an expert on medieval literature. What in this chapter jumps out to you? I- I'm curious to hear how you're reading it. Yeah, so, so two different sort of approaches here. First is the, the approach of the literary scholar that's looking for themes, that's looking for words. And you know, as he pointed out, the immediate word that comes into play is needlepoint. Um, yes. you know, this is a, a scene about needlepoint and about needlepoint that will become, as it were. And yes. what I mean by that is you have two juxtaposed scenes. You have the, the scene of the women and then you have the scene of the men. And this is doing a number of things in terms of both a construction of that that concept of needlepoint as work and different kinds of work. But it's also, as a medievalist, it immediately draws you to the concept of gendered work, which is, is very present in the Middle Ages, but of course is still present today in, in lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. There are kinds of work that are associated with men and women in different societies at different points in time. And here we have a really, uh, a really clear distinction being made between the needlepoint, the private gendered work of the women in their little enclosed indoor area where they're all working away on the socially acceptable art mm-hmm. or perhaps work versus the public arena where the men are preparing for their kind mm-hmm. of work, which mm-hmm. is warfare and, and killing. So the, the movement between those two places is, is really important. And the two characters that perform that, that movement uh, are, are also very, very telling. We have Aya, who is kind of has a bodily destiny not to be in the woman's world, but to be in the world. You know, even at the start, where it, it talks about the fact that she has a hand, the hands of a blacksmith. She's already kind right. of has a bodily destiny to to be part of that other world. Sure. And then the figure of John, who again is perfectly poised as an observer, because he's overlooking he's not part of he can't be part of as he points out yeah this this performance of public masculinity right he has to watch from the shadows literally That's um, right. so I, I think you've got two things going on here one you've got like the, the comparison and the contrast between women's work which is private which is in, inside which is interior yeah very much an insider yeah. outsider yeah, thing, and then the, right? the public world of man and reputation. But mm-hmm. at the same time, that's that's sort of shown to us through these two different spaces. And one of the other things I do is I work on spatial theory a lot. And the, the fact that you have this small enclosed space, which is women, this big public space, mm. it, it connects with um, you know, 
the way in which social history has been written over the last mm-hmm. 50 years, the way in which we've gone from these big public narratives to thinking about how social history works within domestic spaces. Yeah. It's, it's a, as you say, it's a very short chapter. It's a very compact chapter for putting into play certain very key ideas mm-hmm. and of course you know then we get the the, uh, the the echo of needle needle point we have at one point um here john saying you couldn't even lift a long sword and so of course what does he do he has a needle produced to her that's her right later and that's later right in the book. yeah and so needle point becomes a kind of ongoing redefined concept of women's work i want to read a little passage here that i think plays into this theme. So this is John and Arya discussing the the coat of arms Mm. on Joffrey. All right. So look at the arms on his surcoat, John suggested. Arya looked. An ornate shield had been embroidered on the prince's padded surcoat. No doubt the needlework was exquisite. The arms were divided down the middle. On one side was the crown stag of the royal house. On the other, the line of Lannister. The Lannisters are proud... John observed. You'd think that the royal sigil would be sufficient, but no, he makes his mother's house equal in honor to the king's. The woman is important too, Arya protested. John chuckled. Perhaps you, you should do the same thing, little sister. Wed the Tully to the Stark in your arms. A wolf with a fish in its mouth? She laughed. That would look silly. Besides, if a girl can't fight, why should she have a coat of arms? John shrugged. Girls get the arms, but not the swords. Bastards get the swords, but not the arms. I did not make the rules, little sister. And I like that little bit for a number of reasons. Number one, it ties in the embroidery theme that we are introduced to at the very beginning. Like he notices that Joffrey's wearing a split coat of arms. And of course, this sort of recalls for Arya the needlework that she's supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. It drops a little hint about Joffrey's true parentage. Right? He's he, yeah. maybe he's more Lannister than he is Baratheon. I like this for a number of reasons. We also have this sort of display of affection between the two. Uh th- these these two have more in common than they, than they're than they have difference, yeah. it yeah, seems to me. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a lovely little piece that you you've um the dense piece that you've brought up. Um one thing I'd add to that is so needlepoint and embroidery, the joining of houses is also part of women's work. Right, because women right. bring children to the world, and so another part of their domestic role is producing these hybrid creatures, these hybrid bodies. And, and you also have, like, an Aya's point that the women are important too. It also raises that huge question of Martin and feminism, you know, which has been debated and debated and debated. Yes, my students write about it all the time from different points of view, and you can say through figures like Aya, and maybe through a figure like Sansa that changes and becomes so strong later on in the narratives that Martin does kind of have a feminist approach to his work, but at the same time he really, really doesn't. So it's it's it's, it's raising this idea, and then John bats it down again. And and John's really interesting because you know John dismisses it with "I don't make the rules." Mm-hmm. Um, but John kind of does make the rules at the same time, or at least he articulates the rules because all the way through the book, one of the things that John does is John is the voice of kind of reality. He's a bit like, he's a bit like, you know, the good natured version of uh, Santa Clegane in terms of those kind of like truthful statements. about. Yeah. He can kind of cut world. through the, the pageantry and, and sort of be a truth teller. Right. Yeah, he, he, he can. Um, like at the end of this chapter, he, the chapter ends with John saying nothing is fair. Um, sure. his, his phrases kind of like echo through the book, um, but they're not always right. <laughs> well, okay. 
But here we have John. Arya doesn't know it, but John knows at this point in the story that he is going to the wall. Yes. And he's going to the wall because, primarily because he's motivated by his social placement. The wall is the only place where he's going to be able to advance and no longer be a bastard. Yeah. Or so he thinks, right? Uh, and so there, there are very few avenues for advancement for him because of his social role. And I think that he's quietly reflecting on that when he says nothing is fair. Mm, even, you're right. Even so, I mean, it's it's different for Arya than it is for John, but there are some similarities there too. So I guess the question is, John does make the rules. In other words, here's what I would say. I would say John reinforces the rules. Yeah, that's what he articulates. Yeah, and he almost reinforces the rules by by taking this beta role in all of these relationships. He's always going to remind everyone in the room that he's the, you know, he's not a true Stark. Yeah. And by doing that, he's always going to remind people of the social hierarchy. Yeah. And curiously, like, as you say, he, he does kind of buy into his own subjection in that way. Yes. Because we see other bastards in the novels mm-hmm. really not playing by these rules. Right? <laughs> you just have to go up and you have to go a little further north to the Boltons, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so it's obviously possible within the society that we're reading about for bastards to occupy important positions. Maybe not to inherit but right. except when they do, but to but to still be really valuable members of their family, even if they're on the outside of that. John, you know, in his typical starkness, just plays it straight and says, "I cannot, therefore I must leave." Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So as you say, he does kind of like reinforce the rules in that way. Well, and he's bastards are a threat because even be, even if maybe you know only one to five percent of these bastards actually inherit, mm. they represent a threat to the family in a number of ways, because what, you know, what if they do, what if they do jump their station? Um, What would this mean for the rest of us? Yes. They they bring about of instability and insecurity to an otherwise stable system. Yeah. And that, that's very much how they operated in medieval culture as well. Like, yeah, there were legal processes by which bastards could become um, legitimized mm. in the medieval period in different parts of Europe at different times. It differed. And so they were always kind of, as you say, hanging around on the margins, mm. representing a possible alternative, if a problematic one. You know, half a bloodline is better than no bloodline if you're thinking about potential rulers, potential sure. leaders. Um so they, they were dealt with in, in, in the real Middle Ages in interesting ways, often by being given quite privileged positions to keep them happy so that they wouldn't, so that they would be happy with what they were given, but and not try and overreach that. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So then Arya's responsibility, of course, is to eventually do for the Stark family what Sans is prepared to do so she can become half of that embroidered coat of arms, right? Mm. That's sort of Arya's destiny in a way. One that she's not prepared for yet. And really, she maybe she doesn't have to confront it yet, but she knows that she's not happy with gendered expectations of herself. Yeah, yeah, very much. Hence her continual fleeing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. Um, we never see Arya in the position of having to be Sansa. 
she's you know she she's younger she's not ready for that and things fall apart dramatically before yeah she gets. yeah and, yeah but but i think the threat and the fear is always there and what i mean by that is the, the very real threat to women who were not let's just say suited to that mm. kind of future and if you're an aristocratic woman in the real middle ages or in the game of thrones that is your destiny you mm. know as um as her mother has talked about her mother who goes north and talks so much about this great sacrifice that she makes to for her family and, and as a yeah. number of the other ones you know um again uh cersei talks about her, the sacrifices she makes for the family in terms of political marriages that was a, you know, a reality for all aristocratic women in the middle sure uh, I, now, I wanted to ask you a question about geography. Yeah. Because a lot of these medieval maps will include beyond borders or beyond exploration. They'll include places like paradise. Yeah. Or they'll include places, you know, like, um, you know, here be dragons or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, literally off the map. Yeah. Literally off the map. So there's a sense, even in the medieval period, that if you traveled far enough, you might find a supernatural place. You could go beyond the end of the world and and meet these fantastic creatures, heaven and hell sort of creatures. And Martin does that a little bit with the wall, doesn't he? He does. Yeah. So there are kind of boundaries that man should not really go past or the edge of the civilization. But the medieval period is interesting for that because you actually run into them in a lot of travel accounts. For example, you know, the, the medieval encyclopedias talked about the fact if you go you know, beyond the Caspian Sea, you'll start running into the world of monsters. And if you look at a medieval map, often along the margins and edges, you have the monstrous races, which right. are a classical idea, which is sort of transmitted down through the medieval period. But when you actually start to read the... Um, <laughs> One of the really interesting places where this gets tested or explored is in the narratives of the early travelers to China. So there's a couple of early travelers in the 14th century, 13th and 14th century. One is called William of Rubrook, and he's a monk who is sent by the Pope to the court of the Great Khans after the Mongols um, make contact with Western Europe in the 13th mm. century. And so he travels all the way there. And his account is very interesting of like all the pragmatic difficulties of traveling thousands of miles through Central Asia, which mm -hmm. is problematic for a start. But more interesting, like to someone who's interested in the history of, of race and, and cartography, is someone is his the the interactions between his book knowledge and what he actually encounters. So, for example, when he gets beyond the Caspian Sea, his sources, his sort of learned sources, are telling him that he should start to encounter monopods and these other kind of monstrous mm, races. Mm. But he doesn't. It's just more people. <laughs> and he gets there. He so he's like, ah, oh, they must have meant beyond the next hill, beyond right. the next lake. Oh, beyond there. And so he keeps pushing the boundaries back as yeah. he travels through. And, and that's kind of fascinating for a start is, is that the world expands, but the monsters stay there on right. the edges. They always have to be there. There's another uh, narrative called um, the Book of John Mandeville, which is a collection of travel narratives that are worked into one fictitious travel narrative. Hmm. And, and that's really interesting because that includes one story as a counter narrative to the monstrous races of a man, uh, you know, Mandeville's telling of the wonders of the world. And he says one of the most wondrous stories he ever heard was of a man who walked east and walked for many years and eventually found a miraculous, strange world where they spoke the same language that he spoke. <laughs> so basically he circled the world and ended up in a village two miles to the west of where he started um and, and so 
they were aware that the world was round. They were aware that the world was not this kind of like uh, bounded place. But yeah. at the same time, their stories told them they were. And so for a lot of medieval writers and thinkers, it was taking these two ideas and making those two ideas work together. It, yeah, it's kind of fascinating. And I, I don't know how much. Well, that that's right. With, and you keep going, you keep finding humans. Hmm. But you also, if you go far enough, you'll find something like an elephant. Yes. Right. And the elephant is as fantastic a monster as you could ever imagine <laughs> in the first place. Yeah. And so there is sort of this, not just a confounding of expectations, but there's also like, oh my gosh, this is even more amazing than I had ever imagined it could be. Yeah. And so the world of monsters changes. It does. It becomes the world of fascination. The it becomes, yeah, that's right. The exotic. That's in right. lots of different ways. Like, and, and again, the medieval period was very good at that. One of the narratives I teach quite often is uh, a narrative called the Siege of Jerusalem, which is this, which is a retelling of Titus's uh, uh, destruction of Jerusalem in around about 50 AD. And in that one, it's very interesting because you have the Roman Empire destroying the Jewish city of Jerusalem in this kind of weird retroactive revenge for the death of Christ. Huh. They're not actually christian yet but they can do it anyway because they're going to become christians it's a very weird story it's sure. part of the, ven the vengeance of the lord narratives but in that one because it's written in the 13th and 14th century the versions i teach anyone in the middle ages must have uh, in the middle east must have elephants like the saracen armies the Arab right. armies do yeah, so yeah. you have the romans attacking jerusalem in around 50 a.d but the jewish army looks exactly like a 14th century arabic army interesting with elephants and castles on uh, elephants and uh. all that kind of stuff so you're right the, the exotic becomes the thing that's kind of irrespective of time but very much located to place that's so yeah. interesting. It's very, very Tarantino in this in oh, yeah. this way. Yeah, very much. So um, let me ask a, a couple questions about this chapter specifically. We've got some notable introductions in this chapter. Mm -hmm. We learned that Arya's wolf is named Nymeria. And of course, uh, Sansa's wolf is Lady. And there's something about the way that people name animals that reveal just a little bit about their characters. Yeah. Right. We are introduced to Sir Roderick Castle's magnificent white cheek whiskers. Oh, also, we learned that Arya is good with numbers. Yeah. I, I don't know if I remembered that. In other words, she's not good at Sansa at, at pretty much anything that she's supposed to be good at. Yeah. But she's a better horseman, and she's better at keeping numbers. Like, Which, of course, is another nice kind of prefiguring of the counting of the listing of names. Okay, yeah, tell me more about that. Well, just in the way in which that becomes such a mantra for her, the counting of names. Oh, yes. As we go on forwards, you know, because it's a, numbers are important to her, keeping lists are important to her. Yeah, and lists, yeah, lists become crucial for her identity, yeah. right? Yeah, very much. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But that's, I was also thinking of that because specifically, I think traditionally numbers have been a masculine chore, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, very much. I think that's something else that's pointing out the differences between the two. And now Steve and I break from form to actually cover an episode for a full 12 minutes. Steve, your favorite toe-headed blonde is now on the Iron Throne. Yeah, yeah. So we get, to, we get a lot more Joffrey. Yeah, a lot more Joffrey. And we have the introduction to Tywin Lannister, a very arresting opening scene. Yeah. Him. What do you think about yeah, that I mean, guy? I, I mean, I think he... Uh... I think he knows his way around a stag. 
He does? He I does? mean, it was just so matter of fact, right? I mean, whenever I'm lecturing my one of my kids, you know, it's, I can't even really do the dishes at the same time. <laughs> no, but think about the impact it would have if you were skinning a deer. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was the, the I mean, medical... anything you say, anything you say <laughs> is not going to have that sort of impact. Right. It's always going to be, you know, any story that you tell later, right? Like, like my father used to tell me when he was tearing the skin off of a deer. You could be saying, did you take my phone charger? And all of a sudden, it just (laughs) has this import. Right. No, that's true. I guess that that goes along with it. But again, I mean, there was so, he seemed so like, so precise about it. It, For me, you know, because I don't have a lot of stag skinning um, opportunities either no. as as a skinner or as just a casual observer. You're not into taxidermy, for instance? No, not particularly. Um, like, I don't even really like to cut my own nails. I get squeamish. So, I mean, I couldn't imagine <laughs> going that far with a stag. But um, but it seemed so mad. Like, it seemed like, here we go again. Like, like maybe it's like, I don't know, maybe this is the Lannister equivalent of Cameron from Ferris Bueller's dad who just loves that Ferrari, right? He just loves skin and stags. It's like, why can't you just give me your full attention? Mm-hmm. Who do you love? You love a stag. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I, I absolutely love that analogy because Jamie is a little bit Ferris Bueller, just a <laughs> tiny bit Ferris Bueller here. Um, a lot of entitlement with Jamie and uh, but clearly a disappointment. Okay, I'm going to throw an idea at you. I think that, I think we have a theme in this episode. I, w- I want to run it past you. And the theme is contingency plans. So Drogo clearly didn't plan to cross the narrow sea. Right. And he ends up deciding to do that. Ned didn't plan to play the Game of Thrones. John did not plan to be a steward. Uh, Sam didn't plan to forsake his gods and, and embrace the old gods. And Jorah didn't plan to fall in love. And I think that in all of these characters, we're seeing their, the, we're seeing their character develop with an unexpected turn in their expectations. What do you think? Yeah, this is sort of that your best laid plans notion. And, uh, and well, even things- that opening scene, Tywin asks Jamie, why did you let ned live like why is he still alive and jamie was like yeah something unexpected happened i couldn't have killed him cleanly so even jamie's dealing with a situation where he had planned it to go one way and it ended up going sideways on him so taking your theme and adding another nuance to it ned is an interesting one in this because we talked about his um uh sort of his his principled stand and how sometimes that seems to get in the way right and Mm -hmm. And even within his principle, we see the first glimpse of him kind of breaking the rules, right? For, because he writes down rightful error rightful instead error. of my son Joffrey or whatever. Exactly. That is an app. Here he is taking advantage of his trusted position. Mm-hmm. And rather than getting into it at the end of Robert's life here, knowing that who knows where this is going to go, mm-hmm. um, he's got an opportunity and he sees a so it's a greater good op- opportunity, but it is different than what his principal stance would have let. Like now it's his principles are now basically put to the test. Right. I mean, he's, he's, he's run out of time. That, and, and he's also willing to connive with Littlefinger to make sure that the, the right people with the right weapons get paid. Right. 
And Littlefinger calls him out on it. Right. And so then, and then again, that's that's the whole net thing, right? I mean, that is, he has a plan and he starts off with, I'm confronting the queen. I'm going to expose your mm-hmm. situation. But as, you know, I'm a, I'm a good dude. So yeah, he's, his plan is to like reveal the truth. But in order to do that, he's got to do, do a couple things that are somewhat underhanded, it seems to me. Yeah, so we're you know we've we've left off with um, here is Ned. He's got his guys, and and then he's got the official seal from Robert, and it didn't it didn't mean a thing. It's, it's a complete a, yeah paper shields. A complete uh, upending of of orders, and this is this to me is the big one, right? I mean, this is Ned's whole thing is sort of playing his role. He's not overstepping too much. He's trying to be the best you know hand he could be. Well, everyone's aspirations were kind of laid bare this episode. Ned reveals to Cersei that he plans to reveal her dirty secret. And Renly reveals his plan to to actually usurp the throne. And then Cersei makes a play to put her son on the throne. And uh, finally, at the the very end of the episode, we, we find out why Ned shouldn't have trusted Littlefinger for one moment. Right. So, and, he, and he tells him basically, just as I told you. He's a little bit like Sergio Romo when he was throwing that no dot slider. He's like, he's telling you what's coming. Like there's, yeah. everyone knows what's coming. You know the pitch he's gonna throw, and Littlefinger's like, okay, guess what? I'm pretty underhanded. I want to rule everything, and you probably shouldn't trust me. And then like 20 minutes later. Well, and, you know, and that's it, right? And there's there's other motivations that are revealed in the in the brothel scene. This is more than just political. There's a dash of personal in here too. All right. Well, let's talk about this guy. So, I think he's a really interesting character for a number of reasons. I cannot. I just. I. I I'm trying to like this actor. I just. Oh. This actor is just not doing it for me. Is he just? Is it the perma smug? It's either that, or it's the the way he, the way he's trying to. I don't know. I, maybe it's the accent. I don't know what it is. There's just something about. <laughs> there's just something about his affect that takes me out of the story. Just thinking about maybe it's because I saw him in the wire or something. He feels like he's in between two portrayals. Does he have to be raspy? Maybe that's it. Like he's. <laughs> It's like he's he's on like a, a phone sex call or something all of the time. You think the directors are constantly like, like because, you know, you switch directors from, from show to show. Like maybe there's just this disconnect. You're like, nah, I want more rasp. And then the other guy's like, look, I'm going to do the next one. And, you know, I'm going to want you to lose the rasp. So he has to find some sort of middle ground. Because <laughs> I feel like if he was raspier, you'd be like, yeah, no, I mean, that's how he goes. And if he wasn't raspy at all, you'd be like, oh, I would expect him to be more raspy. I really appreciate this choice. Of this lukewarm rasp. Yeah, yeah. I'm sort of nitpicking. Uh, you know, for, for the most part, I think the acting's great, the writing's great, the plots are really intriguing. From time to time, with a cast as big as this, you're going to have one person that just doesn't do it for you. Uh, anyway, have you ever ridden a horse? I think I've gone on a pony ride at a park once. Did anyone tell you you could pick any horse you want? No, it was whatever one was next. Hmm. So you really can't relate to Jorah being told that he can have any horse of the herd. Right. Yeah, that doesn't... Uh, I'm trying to think of a scenario where I've even gotten to pick anything outside of being on Amazon. 
You once gave me a Toyota Corolla with purple flames on the hood. That is correct. Uh, that was quite a gift. That was a kind of equivalent to Drogo giving Jora his best horse. You gave me a car with purple flames on the hood. Yeah, that so was our that was I our best Corolla. I, I absolutely appreciate that. And I feel like the ponytail you were wearing as you gave it to me was <laughs> was equal or better to that of Drogo's. Yeah, I mean that was I mean it was it was a faux ponytail, a phony tail, if you will. <laughs> now I know how you feel about just generally about ponytails. I'm I'm curious if, if you have any feelings about Drogo's ponytail and beard ponytail. Yeah, I think I think Drogo is in a unique position to pull that off. That's good. That, that's, that's very diplomatic of you. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> probably because I I I find myself even though not only is he on my television and this particular episode is many years old, I'm still somewhat nervous that he could do something to me if I were to insult him in any way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, he was Aquaman, so there's that. Have you seen Aquaman? I saw the first 20 minutes. That's about as far as I got. And I thought, I don't think so. Yeah, I got to a point where I'm like, the odds of this getting the degree of better it's going to need to get for me to justify the remainder of this viewing. I just didn't, I couldn't calculate it. No, it I was told, like I was that. actually, I was not expecting it to be good because it's Aquaman. Mm-hmm. But I I heard from a couple people, it's actually not that bad. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm into superhero movies. Mm-hmm. But oh my goodness. Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it was as bad as I would have thought it would have been. But I had the same thing where people were like, no, you should give it a shot. It's fun. And I'm like, mm, maybe. I mean, like, here's the thing. Like, there are times when I have diarrhea that I enjoy it. Not like to the point where I'm like, oh, this is the preferred thing. It's more like, oh, I expected this to be way worse. And, uh, <laughs> and I would say that that's probably how I would maybe walk out of that. Like if I, was, if I had already paid to go to the theater, for example, mm-hmm. and I decided to sit through it and go, oh, okay, well, there were moments of that where when it finally was over with, I'm like, oh, it's so bad. Yeah, well... Hmm. Uh, so a general feeling about the, uh, season one at this point. Um, it's, it's continuing to, to be effective in its ability to, to get me in. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm impressed with how many, I'm trying to think of like other series, mm-hmm. uh, where there's this many subplots that I at least have watched and then still been able to, for the most part, follow. I haven't charted it out, but it seems like there's there's probably 20 characters, and I feel like I care about about 15 of them. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, so, I mean, my feel. Now, I'm going to lay this on you. All right, I've been waiting to lay this on you, but I think that this first season may be among the best first seasons of television of any show ever. Gotcha. And. You know, there. I, I, you put it up against, I don't know, Breaking Bad or whatever. And this is, you know, this is my jam. You've got me in my wheelhouse here, so I'm not going to be completely unbiased. But that's my sense of it. And, of course, I wouldn't have wanted to build you up for it because there are a lot of ponytails. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got my my overall review. Gotcha. Of the yeah, it's pretty impressive. I mean, it was... Uh... It's impressive how, again, how complicated it should be, and how I'm able to follow along. All right. Well, 
right. I'm happy. I'm happy with, with the ground we've covered. Excellent. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints. Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Professor of Psychology, Dr. Gregory Webster. Let's start with Arya. Yeah, so she's uh, almost everyone's, you know, either favorite or maybe top five favorite characters, in part because she's got such an interesting story arc, and she's a point of view character. And she's, um, I think it's interesting to read because she's definitely bucking the stereotype or trope of this maiden girl who's supposed to be, in terms of stereotypes, more like Sansa, right? but she's not. And she, you know, she just kind of wants to do her own thing. She's a little bit frustrated with her gender role, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just trying to kind of find out who she is. And she's stuck in this social situation where she's not able to fully express who she wants to be, right? And we see that, you know, Ned kind of doesn't really have a handle on who she is or what she thinks she wants to be at this point, so... Here's my question for you about Arya. I think that knowing where she ends up, I get the sense that there's a certain duality. Not maybe not even duality, but almost multi there's almost multiple sides to her. So much so that 
she has to grasp on to various different identities, varying identities in order to explore who she is or who she wants to be. So I'm wondering how you read that. What do we do with all of Arya's different names and all of the different things that she's trying on for size? Yeah, well, I think one of the major themes of this entire series is identity and what that means to be yourself, to project an image onto you know, other people, to be seen a certain way, to simply change or adapt and change yourself or identity in order to survive in such a frightening world. And Arya, more than probably most characters, has been through a lot. If we follow her trajectory throughout the entire series, uh, she's been forced into a lot of very difficult situations, and her main goal, for the most part, is survival. Mm-hmm. And to survive, she's had to change her identity constantly. And I think she's gotten to the point now where she's had so many identities that mutability in her identity is almost part of her identity in a way. Hmm. Uh, and in fact, where we leave off with her, she's uh, an actress now, essentially. She's an actress slash assassin. So, uh, you know, and part of a, an actor is to be able to portray uh, all these different characters. And so her identity is almost this changeling in a way that's just able to mimic all these uh, other different characters. And she's, you know, trying to use it to her advantage to uh, survive and be an act of revenge. And now for this week's Bird's Eye View. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to talk about the symbolism of the number seven. In Catelyn's first chapter, we are introduced to the concept of a sept, that being a place of worship. We also meet Septa Mordain in Arya's POV chapter. Thus, we have the not-so-subtle suggestion that the number seven is going to be symbolically important for whatever religion Martin is building at this point. Now, Martin has claimed that the faith of the seven is loosely based on Roman Catholicism, or at least what he remembers of it from his youth. But Martin has also said that he never creates a one-to-one correspondence. With this in mind, I would like to suggest that the faith of the seven is based on Roman religion more broadly underscoring the Roman part of Roman Catholic. And this can be seen in the importance of the number seven. So I'm going to give you four examples of four different systems of worship that came under the umbrella of the Roman Empire, and I'd like to show how each of them may have contributed in some way to the symbolism of seven as we meet it in Martin's world. First, let's point out that Rome was a city with seven prominent hills. In fact, some ancient texts will simply refer to Rome as a city with seven hills. In the ancient world, we might expect to meet a shrine or some monument to a deity on each hill, generally speaking. But here's why I think that's important specifically for these Roman hills. In a world of ice and fire, Martin has pointed to the faith of the seven as being a product of the Andals. And the Andals believed that their seven deities were seven real people that once existed, and their patriarch, Ugor of the Hill, was a real guy. So, in short, we could say that the faith of the seven is an extension of hill people ideology. So it's just noteworthy, I think, that Rome is the city of seven hills. But maybe we find the first clue even preceding Roman religion. And we have to remember at this point 
that Rome borrowed, and when I say borrowed, I mean (laughs) plagiarized, a lot of Greek religion. Of course, the Greeks borrowed a lot of their ideas from Egypt. But specifically for Greek ideology, we see veneration of the seven wandering luminaries in the sky. In other words, the sun, the moon, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, and Saturn all represented sacred stories. And of course, Rome took over these deities and renamed them. And so there you have it, another incident where the number seven becomes sacred to Rome. The third possible influence would be from Mithraism. Temples that feature veneration to Mithras will include several altars. And in one temple, we meet seven altars, each dedicated to a different archetype. Raven, husband, soldier, lion, Persian, meaning Perses, courier of the sun, and the father. So at least two of these have analogs with Martin's faith of the seven. Soldier corresponding to warrior and father corresponding to father. But as we should expect with Martin's world building, there is no one-to-one correlation. So we shouldn't expect, in other words, to find the raven in the faith of the seven. Just so happens that there are seven altars. It's also notable that if you are an adherent to Mithraism, there are seven stages of enlightenment. And then finally, the fourth element of Roman religion that would probably have had an impact, maybe the most impact on Martin's world, is Roman Catholicism, in which we find the doctrine of the Trinity featured strongly. Martin has, of course, expanded from three to seven. But we should also know that seven is a prominent number in the Bible, the sacred text of Roman Catholicism. And we should remember that included in the seven faces of God is the maiden, and this may have a direct analog to the Virgin Mary. So there are four possible impacts of real-world Roman religion upon the faith of the seven, that being Rome's seven hills, the seven luminaries borrowed from Greek religion, the seven stages of spirituality by Mithraism, and the archetypes used by both Mithraism and Roman Catholicism. Finally, let's recall that as per George Costanza, phonetically speaking, seven is a beautiful name for a newborn child. And that's all for this week. Next time on Electric Boogaloo. So Tyrion's back with Shaga. Yeah. And uh, Ty- <laughs> Tyrion. Yeah, Shaga, why not? <laughs>